coming to you live from my parents' house. We got episode 25 of the Changavi Show. Those of you that are new, welcome, welcome. Those of you that are old, what up? The boy is back, and we're here to deliver some news. Not news, but we're here to, you know, do what we normally do here on the Changavi Show. I'm, of course, your host, Anuj Changavi. For those of you that don't know me, my last name is on the front of this show, so you should probably know that by watching this. But uh, those of you that don't, now you know. So that's what's up. Um, it's been quite the night, uh, actually. Um, listen, Russia just invaded Ukraine, but I don't think I should talk about it on the show because I feel like I don't have the full picture yet. Uh, there's a lot of moving parts, moving pieces, a lot of constant change here. Um, it just hit like 9 a.m. In, in Russia and Ukraine, and we're already talking invasion. So the day hasn't even unfolded. It's probably going to unfold when most of us are asleep anyway. I'm recording this at like 11.55 at night. Um, but it's been quite the day, and we have a huge show in front of us. Uh, a lot of different stuff. But not the Russian-Ukraine stuff, uh, though. Expect some more Russia-Ukraine content coming out uh, throughout the weekend, because this will probably come out Saturday. Um, but throughout the weekend, if it already hasn't come out uh, yet, because I'm just going to be releasing periodic updates on TikTok, because that's what TikTok's for. So if you want to catch me on TikTok, you can follow me uh, at The Changavi Show on all social media platforms. Um, other than that, though, I think I've been doing, I've been doing solid. It's been, it's been a good week. Um, you know, obviously the long weekend was nice president's day. Uh, I know y'all were <laughs> a couple of you were probably pretty surprised. Like, Oh, and you didn't do a video canceling presidents. Oh my gosh. Like we're in the clear on that one. That's what next year's for homie. God, I can't hit all the holidays in one year. Come on now. <laughs> nah, I'm just kidding. Um, but nah, for real, I think, um, this whole, uh, Russia-Ukraine thing has been absolutely crazy, uh, and it has. I I've tried not to like let it have a negative impact on my mental health, um, although I do worry. But at the same time, I'm very. Um, I don't want to say optimistic because at this point, like there is an invasion on the table we're talking about. But like, I want to say that like I I am very um, I'm very confident in that. Uh, we're going to see a lot. <laughs> we're going to see what Joe Biden is made of here in that like his presidency and his legacy is on the line with whatever happens here uh, and this foreign policy. And I would say Kamala Harris as well should be included in that conversation because at the end of the day, like she's a vice president and Joe Biden, like I've talked about many times, is 81 years old. So it's going to be very or he will be 81 years old by the time 2024 rolls around. So most likely he's pretty old. I don't think he's going to run. And Kamala Harris is going to be most likely the Democratic nominee. So let's see. Let's see what happens. I think it's going to be very, very interesting to see if the Democrats run out somebody else. But that's a whole separate topic and conversation for another day. But the, the fact is this. The Democrats' legacy right now is on the line. You have the midterms coming up in November. You have a lot of House seats that are up. And if Russia and Ukraine gets botched under a full Democratic administration from the Senate to the House to the president, there's going to be major changes come November. And we could be right back to where we were in 2016 or to, 
and yeah, in 2016, with a completely divided Congress and president and president, and we're back to doing absolutely nothing. I don't know, but that's just kind of like my really raw and unfiltered thoughts here as this whole news starts to kind of filter through. But that is on it, and so I don't want to talk about it here on the show. Um, at least for a little bit. Uh, but let's let's go to this because we got some we got some fucking interesting topics uh, this this week. And for our sports topic of the week, it's not going to be like the traditional sports topic, but it is going to be something I think that y'all are going to find very fascinating. And we're going to talk a little bit about Saudi Arabia and golf. And y'all are probably thinking like, what what do these two entities have in common? Like MBS and the sport of golf. Like what? What do they play golf in the Middle East? Is it like a traditional sport out there? I didn't know any of this information, but my my guy, my guy. I listen to sports radio every morning. For those of you that don't know me all that well, I do. Um, and there's a local uh, morning show uh, on 95.7 The Game, which is the local radio station here in the Bay Area, or one of the local radio stations in the Bay Area. Um, and every morning, I for about 45 minutes to an hour, it's kind of like my nightly not nightly, but like my daily routine, they kind of are embedded in my daily routine at this point. I listen to Joe Shasky and Bonte Hill, and they break down the Warriors and the Niners and all the different sports, but they also talk about other sports too. And I like hearing them kind of talk about different sports. Like I, they, they talk about Bay, local Bay Area high school sports. They talk about different stuff. They're great. If you're out here in the Bay or if you're a Bay Area sports fan, I think you can download like one of the radio apps and like get their show. It's very good. I highly recommend it. They're super, super fun. Um, six to nine, I believe, in the morning. Um, so definitely go check them out if you haven't. But anyway, Joe Shasky, aka Butcher Boy, was talking about, uh, was just kind of briefly mentioning this on one of the shows. He was like, if any of you are really, really interested in kind of geopolitical issues as well as intersecting with sports, this might be the story for you. And he kind of went and gave sort of a summary on Saudi Arabia and golf. And I was like, oh shit, this is crazy. And so he was explaining it. He kind of gave like the 90 second like log line. That's like, what do you really need to know about this story? And I was sort of like, okay, like this is, this is so interesting. So I did a lot of research. So shout out Joe Shasky for the inspiration on this one. But I did a lot of research and this is kind of what I found. This is a crazy story in itself, but I kind of want to break this down into more of a digestible manner so that everyone can sort of understand it because it's very complicated. Anytime you involve Saudi Arabia, it gets complicated, understandably so. So like, what do the Saudis want with golf? I feel like this is the main question people are going to have, right? And let me, let me try and answer this. So as I'm not someone who follows golf on a huge basis, so I kind of had to go through and really understand like, okay, what is going on in the PGA tour right now? For those of you that don't know, the PGA tour is the main tour of golf. That's like where a lot of the men, uh, the male golf players play. The female golf players play on the LPGA, which is a whole separate tour uh, that I don't really know too much about. But there's always been sort of this idea for the last few years or so to break away from the main PGA tour. There's been a lot of like alternative tours that have been proposed. There's been a lot of players that have been very unhappy with the way the PGA tour has been running. This is kind of 
been going on for quite some time. There's been some tension here with this whole situation. But the thing is, no one has really posed sort of a major challenge to the PGA Tour. The PGA Tour, obviously, as you know, is like the most established sort of version of golf, uh, of pro golfing. There's a lot of, you know, different variables and, and things like that that are involved. Um, and the commissioner of the PGA tour, uh, um, his name's more like his last name's Morrison, but I'm losing, I'm losing his name. I'll, I'll come back to it. Um, but the commissioner of the PGA tour has come out and has basically said that if you were to join theoretically, if one of these alternative tours were to be created and it were to have the legs, if you were to join one of these alternate tours, you would be hit with a lifetime ban from the PGA, meaning you could never come back. It's like, okay, you you did that? All right, you're gone. You can never come back. You're canceled from the PGA Tour. That's basically what uh, the commissioner of the PGA Tour has been saying about this issue um, and regarding all of this stuff. Okay, so then now, right now, where does Saudi Arabia come into the picture? Well, as we all know, Saudi Arabia is one of the richest countries in the whole entire world. They make a lot of money through oil and a lot of money through the crown, the sort of uh, monarchy that uh, is ruling over the country. Um, so there's this organization called the PIF, which is basically kind of the wealth fund of Saudi Arabia. It's a different acronym. And what they're trying to do is they were initially trying to create partnerships with the diff with different tours initially. So, okay, <laughs> let me let me start over. The PIF is a wealth fund of Saudi Arabia. Okay. And they wanted to get it. They've been wanting to get involved with sports as of recently. They've been, they've been wanting to do that. It's been a new tactic of theirs because, you know, obviously Saudi Arabia doesn't have the greatest reputation in the Western world in regards to their human rights record and all of these things. So they're kind of employing this tactic called sports washing. Um, where they sort of integrate within sports in the Western world to sort of appear like they're a legit country and kind of curry favor with Western nations. It's been done by Nazi Germany to a much greater extreme uh, in the 1930s. And Saudi Arabia is essentially trying to was trying to do that. So that's why initially with their sort of involvement with golf, they really wanted to get involved with the European tour and the PGA. And so they were like, okay, like we can come up with some partnerships. Like we have a lot of money in our wealth fund. Both a lot of the tours have rejected. Uh, but just to get you an idea as to how much money Saudi Arabia has, they have over $580 billion in assets that they're willing to, and they're willing to dump an exorbitant amount of money into these sports and potentially into creating a new golf tour. So this is where the problem lies, right? Like I explained, Saudi Arabia is trying to sports wash. This has been their thing. This is what they want to do. But the PIF, uh, which is the wealth fund, and and the Saudi and Saudi Arabia in general have committed tremendous amounts of human rights violations. I mean, it is on the record. Jamal Khashoggi, the way they you know behead, not behead, but kill people who are LGBTQ, all of these things. There's crazy stuff that's going on over there, right? And they're appearing, they're trying to appear more progressive by integrating within Western sports, like I said earlier. And they've done this through, um, they actually bought Newcastle United. Uh, they bought a majority stake in that Premier League organization. Um, I don't know exactly when, but they have an 80% stake in the team. So they've kind of started to do this in other sports. And golf is kind of their latest sort of venture within this whole entire thing. Okay. 
So the Saudi tour has sort of gotten these legs because of recently because they have actually vultured a lot of former PGA executives by offering them a lot of money. Uh, they're saying um, reports are saying that like it's the, the amount of money that you are being offered to work on the Saudi tour uh, to be an executive for their tour is like eight to nine figures. It's crazy. It's a crazy amount of money um, that they're offering people and. People are taking it because it's a lot of freaking money. And also a lot of the people that they're trying to get are people who are on their last legs uh, in the PGA, you know, about to retire, stuff like that. And they're doing the same thing with players. So not just executives, but they're doing the same thing with players. Players have gone on the record um, in golf who are on the PGA tour. And they've said basically pretty much everyone in the top hundred has been offered by the Saudi tour to come play on their tour and to come play on their circuit. Um, and you have to leave the PGA, obviously. So basically, the Saudis are offering like close to nine figure amounts. Like I was saying, they're offer they were offering nine figure amounts to um, what's it called to executives, but they're also offering it to players as well. So anyone who decides to join the tour will get like a nine figure amount of money. And basically, they're only playing about twelve to fourteen events a year, um, most of which are in the Saudi desert, and then the other few are in the uh, are on Donald Trump's golf courses throughout the world. So, but you wouldn't be able to play any of the kind of prestigious golf events, right? The, uh, the U S opens, the PGA championships, the majors, all of these things, you would not be able to play any of those events. So that's kind of where it all stands. Um, and the reason this whole tour is gaining legs right now is because, or, or was gaining legs was because there were two main players who are at the top of golf and their names are Bryson DeChambeau and Phil Mickelson. Both of the Bryson and Mickelson are known as like a couple of the best players in golf, widely known as, you know, uh, widely respected amongst the PGA tour, but hold on. <laughs> they were also publicly going on the record and saying that they were interested, but they hadn't really signed off on anything officially. Um, and there is another player by the name of Rory McIlroy, who is really anti this whole thing, who does not believe in the Saudi tour and all of these things. And has gone on the record and said, like, if you join the Saudi tour, you're betraying and all of these things. So there's this big internal fight amongst players on the PGA tour as well. So this is all going on. There's all this tension from PGA and be banned for a lifetime. And then a couple of days ago, a lot of golf's best players. So I'm talking like the guys who were offered. So like people who have won multiple majors, guys like Dustin Johnson, Bryson DeChambeau, like I talked about earlier, they decided to go with Rory McIlroy, who's been the main defector. And they basically said, we're not going to leave the PGA. We're done. Like, you know, we were entertaining the Saudi tour, but not nah, it's, it's over. But then there was one Phil Mickelson. And this guy, Phil Mickelson has had a long career in the PGA. A lot of people know who he is. He's, Definitely considered to be one of the best golfers, you know, um, in in the in the world right now. But I wouldn't say like in of all time. I wouldn't put him on the all time list in you know the very limited golf that I know. Um, but here's the thing: is that a lot of people are saying that the Saudi tour is dead because guys like that, uh, guys like Bryson DeChambeau and Dustin Johnson have left and have said like, oh, like we're sticking with the PGA. But Phil Mickelson made some comments that kind of make this seem suspicious. And I, I have the quote here and I want to read it to you. And, and you're going you're gonna to think this is interesting. So Phil Mickelson, kind of in the midst of this whole situation when he was considering the Saudi tour, um, 
sort of was trying to express his emotions as to what was going on uh, in regards to his thought process of maybe potentially defecting from the PGA and going to the Saudi tour. And basically, this is what he said. He said, in reference to the Saudis, they are some scary motherfuckers to get involved with Nicholson said on the website we knew we know they killed uh Washington Post reporter and U.S. resident Jamal Khashoggi and have a horrible record on human rights they execute people over there for being gay knowing all of this why would I even consider it because this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to reshape how the PGA tour operates they have been able to get by with manipulative coercive strong-arm tactics because we the players had no recourse as nice a guy as PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan, his name was Monahan, my bad, uh, comes across as unless you have unless you have leverage, he won't do what's right. And the Saudi money has finally given us that leverage. I'm not even sure I want the Saudi Golf League to succeed, but just the idea of it is allowing us to get things done with the PGA Tour. The whole comment comes off as absolutely awful. It makes Phil Mickelson look terrible. It makes Phil Mickelson basically fall from grace in a lot of ways. Um, and it's not, it's not great. It's not a great look for Phil, especially as someone who is as liked and well within the golf community as Phil Mickelson. Not a lot of people know about this story because not a lot of people watch golf, but Phil Mickelson basically went on the record and said, I'm going to, I'm going to play in the Saudi tour just to show, just to basically say F you to the PGA, right? That's basically what he was saying through those words. It's kind of crazy. Obviously there wasn't any miscommunication but he but here's the thing he publicly apologized for those comments obviously but does it really matter i think phil mickelson really kind of revealed his true colors here as to like he's willing to use the money to get leverage um to get leverage and all of these things but he showed such a disregard for human rights such a disregard for uh, the Saudi political geopolitical context and all of these things, which is what makes this such a complicated issue is you literally have um, different countries almost involved within this tour and players defecting and all of this. But, but here's the thing, right? At the end of the day, right now, a lot of the golf top players have publicly come out and said, like, we're not going anywhere. Like we're going to stay, you know, with the PGA and all of these things. So people think the threat is gone. But I don't think the threat's gone because here's the thing. The Saudi tour has several investors who've continued to dump money into it. They have $580 billion of assets within their wealth fund, like I said earlier. And they've been trying to sports wash for years. They bought Newcastle United. They've been trying to get involved. Saudis are not going away from golf, ladies and gentlemen. If you think this story is over just because some players defected, defected now, where do you think this is going to end up? I think this is far from over. I think you. I think Saudi Arabia is going to try something new, whether that be you know trying to get players maybe from the European tour to get involved. I don't know what that is. I really don't know the intricacies of golf, but I don't think the Saudis in golf are done yet. This is definitely a story to keep your eye on. And Phil Mickelson may have just had a great fall from grace because that is massive. The fact that he went on the record and said all of those things. I read you the exact quote um, and showed a real disregard for people uh, and kind of looked very self-interested because a lot of what he was saying was just, you know, trying to get his interest on the PGA tour uh, out there. So I don't know what to tell you guys. Is this, this is kind of a crazy story. We're definitely going to keep some tabs on this. 
Um, but a lot of people think it's done. I personally don't because of the fact that just Saudi Arabia has so much money and you never know with this country. Um, and particularly countries, as we see with Russia and Ukraine, you never know when they're going to attack. You never know when these invasions are going to happen. I'm not saying Saudi Arabia is going to invade, but you never know, like with dictators like MBS, like what is going to happen? Crazy shit, man. That's all I'm going to say. There's some crazy shit going on. Okay. So let's transition from Saudi Arabia and golf and all of these things. And let's talk a little bit about Lily Singh. <laughs> Lily Singh. What is this transition, dude? What are you trying to say? Okay, let me let me get into it real quick. I was watching the Colin and Samir podcast, and let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Colin and Samir are just single-handedly carrying my content these days. I feel like three-fourths of what I uh, talk about in the pop culture section is because of them. They give me my ideas. They give me my inspiration to just comment on things. And they do a way better job than I do, but I just, you know, I try and uh, emulate them in this pop culture section. They're they're so good at what they do. Uh, shout out Colin and Samir. If you guys ever listen to this, I would work for you guys 100%. I would be a researcher. I would want to work in your studio to see kind of what your process is. Please hire me. Um, I'm just like, honestly, like this podcast is kind of like a video resume where I could just be like, uh, just like shout out creators and be like, yo, can I intern for you? Can I be your assistant? All you got to do is just give me a place to live and like give me minimum wage. I'll come work for you. Um, even I don't even like less than minimum wage. As long as you give me a place to stay and like food to eat that's like semi healthy, I'm cool. I'm cool. I'm cool. I'm cool. Right? Colin and Samir, hit me up, bro. Hit me up, bros. I'd, I'd come work for you. Samir, come on, that brown connection. That brown connection. That brown, brown. Let's go. Anyway, anyway, um, enough of me joking around. Uh, but I do watch a lot of Colin Samir podcasts, and they do a really good job of interviewing a lot of different creators within the industry. And one of the creators that they interviewed, uh, I don't want to say recently, but a few months ago was Lily Singh. Um, and they interviewed Lily Singh. And for those of you that know me pretty well, you know that I'm not Lily's biggest fan. Um, I think she's a little stereotypical. I think she's had some controversies in the past. I've, I've kind of said all of these things. I'm not sure if I've said it publicly on the podcast, but I, I, I privately have had this opinion amongst friends and amongst a lot of people for a long time. So yeah, I'm not, I haven't been a, the, her biggest fan. I haven't really had, um, kind of the highest regarded opinion, but I think it's changing. I think it's changing a little bit. And she's had some controversy amongst the Brown community as well. I mean, I, people have said she's culturally appropriate black culture and all of these things. And yeah, to an extent it's true, but also like, you know, there's been a lot of people that have, I mean, and made mistakes in the past. Are we really going to like make sure they continue to whatever. Um, but what I noticed in this interview, because she went on this interview with Colin Samir, it was almost an hour, hour, 10 long. Um, and what I noticed from Lily was someone who was just felt more mature. You know, the first time I really encountered Lily Singh uh, was her early on YouTube. She's kind of this kid who was coming up in the industry, who was just making skits, having fun. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just there was no like as a gator, she was just still coming up. Like she wasn't anything, anything crazy or anything. But as you know, she's kind of grown, grown this following, become sort of a, an influencer of sorts, had a big platform, um, and then eventually like kind of 
use that leverage that platform to get into late night like that's when like holy shit lily singh is massive like she she's on nbc every night like people all over the country are seeing like who lily singh really is and you know i know a lot of people don't like lily singh at all and i think that they think that she's a cultural appropriator and that you know her jokes aren't funny and whatever but like after listening to this whole show I, there's something about Lily Singh that I really like. There's something about her energy, and I've been watching like her kind of newer stuff. I really like the new Lily Singh. I'm not to say that like I didn't like the old one. I like some of her videos, but like I like this new kind of sort of 30 year old like growing into her grown into herself. Lily, like she's really like gotten into the spirit, spiritual things. She, grown as a creator she has something like very real that like i feel like a lot of the other indian content creators right now don't have and i'm talking specifically about you know the person i bet she's compared to the most mindy kaling she seems to have like way more perspective than mindy does i know mindy's like 11 years older and i know the two are friends but i i think lily's just got something about her that is just it's energetic it's a cool energy but it's also very um she's very what's it called it's it's hard to describe but she's got this aura and she's and she's just she's she's changed she's changed since i last saw her maybe it's i grew older maybe i matured a little bit and now i can see her for who she is but she's really she's really changed a lot um and she was talking a lot about on the on the podcast she was talking a lot about kind of her sort of late night run and, it, you know, it lasted for two seasons and then she was eventually canceled, like right as the eve of the pandemic hit. Um, and to be honest, I didn't really watch her late night show. I wasn't like a huge consumer of late, uh, a little late with Lily Singh. Um, but listening to her talk about it, it was really interesting because she brought up this fact that like when she was a host, you know, with Fallon and Kimmel and Colbert, like you see their clips, you see their YouTube videos out there. They're being shared. They're being, you know, viewed and stuff. And the fact is like she was up there with them like she's a late night host right she went on Corden, like yeah you know, or she's like she's she's working at the same network as like james Corden. she's her rivals are like seth myers fallon kimmel all of these guys and the reality is we hardly ever saw her clips and i went back and i watched a few of those clips they're pretty freaking good they're pretty good she did a good job like she was good at analyzing the events that were going on during the trump presidency and the reality is a lot of late night show hosts are men. They're men and they have certain perspectives on things. But here's the thing, like Kimmel and Fallon and, um, you know, Myers, they have their own white liberal man perspectives. But Lily's got a different fresh perspective. She's a woman like as a woman, I think you have different perspectives on issues. And I think that's just natural. But it was never brought to the consumer's attention that like, oh, this is an alternate, this is an alternative perspective. Like this could totally happen. And that's, that's so sad. That's so sad. If you think about it, it's just like, we, we, I mean, through the Trump presidency, you had so many women's rights issues come up. You had the, you had so many abortion issues come up. You had so many of these like crazy um, women's uh, sort of like this fourth, fifth wave of feminism type issues that came out into the conversation, into the mainstream, into the open. And Lily Singh was a late night show host during all of this. And her perspective, like she, she did a whole bit on abortion and doesn't have views. No one talked about it. 
And the fact is, she was the only female late night host. Who else? I mean, you look at all the main talk show hosts. I'm not even saying like late night. Like, look at talk show hosts in general. Like, there's only like two or three that I can think of off the top of my head. Besides like The View, uh, Drew Barrymore, who does like talk show at 1 p.m. when like senior centers in America are watching. And Lily Singh, who was doing late night. But that is gone now. It's gone because she's canceled. Like her, her show got canceled. She didn't get canceled. Her show got canceled. Um, and like that's kind of crazy that we hardly, as the consumers, ever saw her stuff. Uh, which is which is sad. But she, I mean, I think it's cool because I think Lily has kind of turned the page from late night. From what I can tell in the interview, like I said earlier, she's sort of become this uh, very um like spiritual person and she's kind of documented used youtube and used her sort of huge platform on youtube to kind of uh document that journey and she's come out like she came out as bisexual i think she did that before late night or during late night i'm not sure when but she she came out as bisexual and that was absolutely huge for the brown community like to have someone like that in mainstream media like that like is huge and now she's got her own production company where she can literally make projects on her own. And I'm so excited to see like some of the features that she comes features, TV shows, whatever she decides to come out with, because I think they're going to be really freaking good. And I think she's going to tell some really fun stories. Um, I would love, I really wish like her, I think if you were to replace Lily and Mindy, if you were to have Lily do late night or sorry, not late night. Uh, um, what's it called? Never have I ever. I think if Lily, Singh were to be the director of Never Have I Ever, I think I would be having a whole different point of view. I think it'd be a much better show because Lily Singh's done YouTube skits. Lily Singh knows how to like make people laugh. She's kind of unfiltered with it. She she's done comedy. That's how she came up. Like Mindy came up through stand up, which is a separate conversation. Lily came up through skits. Like you have to dress up, you have to kind of act everything out. Like she came up basically like making her own sort of TV shows. So I would love to see her get a crack at one of these like Indian shows, quote unquote, right for Netflix or whatever it may be. Um, I think they could. I think Lily should be taken in as an advisor on Never Have I Ever. I, I'm looking at everybody. I'm looking at Lang Fisher. I'm looking at Mindy Kaling. Like, yo, call up Lily Singh. She's she's not doing anything crazy right now. She's not working on late night. She's not busy or anything. I mean, I'm sure she's busy, but like she, I'm sure she could take a call from Mindy Kaling on fellow Indian woman. Work together on this. Get her advice. I think it would be really beneficial. Um, but I really do think that, like, I've had this kind of turnaround with Lily saying, I think she's going to kill it in her own projects. Like, she's going to do a lot of her own projects, and I think it's going to go really far. Um, and I'm I'm very excited to see where it goes because, you know, she had her late night run, and the first time around, it wasn't great. You know, it wasn't, it didn't end up the way that she probably thought it would, right? She wasn't like as successful as maybe she had hoped. But I think now we're, you know, she's got, she's back on YouTube. She's kind of, you know, back in this new creative space. So it's going to be really exciting to see like where she goes now. Um, but I do think she is the answer right now for South Asian representation. I think out of anybody uh, that I see, who's very established and there's there's you know a counting number at this point um i'd take ho her over mindy right now uh to, if she were to direct never have i ever i think she'd do a really good job and i would love to see her uh get a crack at one of these south asian representation type shows because i think she would have a really cool take on it and it wouldn't be the kind of 
Mindy Kaling sort of sex lives with college girls type take that we've seen five times already because Lily has never gotten a crack at it. I would love to see Lily Singh get a crack at a TV show. I think she could do really good things with it. Um, and I think as a South Asian, I, I think everybody should get a chance. And I think Lily deserves one as well. So Lily Singh, if you're listening to this, shout out to you. You're awesome. Uh, keep doing you uh, because I think you're going to see a lot of success. You already have, but I think you're going to see some more. Um, I'm positive about it. So put myself out there. Shout out Lily. Anyway, listen, we got to go from Lily to the next best thing uh, since sliced bread. This man has given me content for days. He just creates beautiful memes on his Instagram that make me laugh my ass off. Lot guys, we got to talk about the 22222 or 22222 genius genius Kanye West. Oh man, oh man, Kanye, Kanye, yay! I love Kanye. I could just say his name for fucking 15 minutes and call that content. Um, this man literally makes everything he does turn into absolute gold. I think he's so I think he's so freaking hilarious. Um, I think his memes on Twitter and stuff, like the Civil War meme, had me dead. I think Kanye, Kanye West is one of these like few celebrities who could absolutely break the internet. Like anything he does, like if if he starts wearing like if Kanye West were to wear like a construction vest tomorrow and post a picture in it, I guarantee you there'd be like I I could drive down the street to my local high school. Um, the one that I went to and like two days from now, I'd see like three or four kids try to like emulate Kanye West construction best meme. Like I, I guarantee you, I guarantee you. I think my senior year of high school, Ariana Grande wore this like particular outfit in this Instagram photo, uh, with Pete Davidson when they were dating. Um, and there were like, there were these two girls that tried to make it there or that made it their Halloween costume. Like one of them was Ari and the other one was Pete. I think I'm not sure. Um, so shout out to those two girls, but that being said, I don't know who they were. <laughs> that being said, Kanye is doing something very unique with Donda two, which is his new album that released on two the special day. Um, and what he's doing is he only released the album on the stem player. What the hell is the stem player? Inage? Well, the stem player is kind of this sort of music editor speaker type thing where you can press buttons and like isolate different parts of a song and create remixes and all this stuff. It's pretty cool. It actually sounded really cool. Um, but I think most people are getting the player so that they can get the album paid $250 for it. Um, and you know, and then it comes with the album pre-downloaded. You like download it onto your computer and you know, you can listen to it and whatnot. And uh, apparently, according to Kanye's Instagram, he said that he did like close to $2.3 million of sales on his first day. So that's freaking impressive. Um, shout out my guy. If if that's true, $2.3 million on a STEM player, that's, that's insane, man. Absolutely insane. So, I mean, like I said, the player has like its functionality and actually seems kind of cool. I personally wouldn't purchase it because I'm not a musician, but I definitely no musicians that would you know could make use of it i don't it's, it seems really small i don't i don't really know how you can do all those things um but yeah i think it could be used effectively if you're like a music producer or some shit like i think it could work um 
But Kanye, like, his main point with this whole stem player, right, and releasing this song or releasing the albums on a stem player was the whole idea that you he he's like fuck streaming services and streaming services with artists have become this huge war that's going on behind the scenes of the music industry where we don't want or where they don't want to give like any credit to anybody um and like or like sorry that was really bad wording uh they don't want like where artists want a lot like artists want their money but at the same time like spotify and all the various streaming services are trying to take more than they give and it's turned into this huge war um and i think you see it particularly with these bigger sort of artists out there um particularly with you know the kanye's of the world and you know people who are big and he does have a point in that he's he basically said in his explanation of trying to you know of why he's only releasing donda 2 on the stem player that like one of the main things is that he believes that artists don't truly benefit from their music which is true i think what is it like they only get to keep like 11% of their profit uh, that they get on streaming platforms and they barely get enough money on streams. They get like maybe like 0.0025 of a cent per stream. Like it's nothing. And, and it's, I mean, if Kanye is doing that for that cause to like really like be like, yo, streaming giants, like y'all need to do better if you're going to make me take my, or make me um, release my music on your platforms. Otherwise I'm going to take my business elsewhere. Like good for him. That's a, that's a good point. But I do get the point of it. And Kanye West can get away with that, right? He's huge. He's massive. Everybody, you know, will follow Kanye West. He did $2.3 million of sales. But how are other artists going to follow suit? Or are they content with what they get on Spotify? Because Spotify and streaming platforms give them something that they probably wouldn't have if it weren't for these streaming services, which is exposure. They get you a wide variety of people to listen to your music. It's accessible. Everybody's got Spotify on their computer. I have it right here. I just click a button, search your name in the artist window. It comes up. That's why I like it as a podcaster. I don't really know how much money I get per stream. Do I get money per stream on Spotify? I don't know. But like maybe I should look into that as a podcaster. I think it's like less. I think it's like somewhat of a, a fraction of a cent. It's probably like less than the amount of Bitcoin that I own. TBH. <laughs> but um, but like yeah, it's really small. And you know, I, I don't necessarily think that artists in today's society are like thinking like, oh yo, I gotta release my music on other platforms or like figure out a way to do my like music exposure because spotify is you know treating me like shit i think they prefer like especially upcoming artists and upcoming content creators like look at myself like upcoming podcaster like you want spotify because it's the it's the place where everybody listens to stuff it's the place where everyone can just search at you know the changabi show comes up click on an episode and listen you want to make it as easy as possible for the consumer that's what i have learned and I feel like a lot of artists don't want to kind of go through the extra legwork and, you know, do all that. Um, and, you know, like, can indie artists do what Kanye did? Probably not. They can they can replicate maybe at like a smaller level, but I don't think to, to the level that Kanye is doing it. I don't know. Um, you know, I, I, there's there's a big example of of uh, artists that have left specific streaming platforms. You know, Jay Z obviously started Tidal, and so he left Spotify for a bit, but then he came back and dropped all his music there. So that was cool. Um, but it's all dependent on how how the situation plays out. With Kanye, Kanye's a guy who likes to like. He's also been like a guy who thinks in phases a lot of the time, and I don't want to judge him because he does have a lot of mental health and all of these things, and I don't want to like look at him any differently for that. 
But I really, I, I actually do like the product that Kanye's come out with. It seems like it's a good product. I haven't really seen any product reviews just because it's so new. Um, but I think we're starting to see like creators instead of merch kind of shift in this direction of like providing actual valuable products. Like you see Emma Chamberlain like started making coffee, like Chamberlain coffee instead of hoodies, right? Um, you know, Logan Paul with NFTs. Like these are things that like provide more value than just, you know, oh, like this cool, you know, shirt. Like I I, I like this cat. Like let me wear it, you know? Um, so like providing more of like a intimate value with the consumer is definitely something that I, I feel like the STEM player has and can be replicated and can be seen through like maybe other content creators eyes. And you are like, yo, like I want to, I want to do that. Like, that sounds sick. And like, maybe make something like that. Um, and listen, I know I made a whole video talking about the mental health issues of Kanye West. This was like way back, like four months ago, five months ago, maybe. And yes, all of that is 100% true. He's going through a lot mentally, a lot of stuff. But here's what you got to know. <laughs> he is an absolute fucking creative genius. This dude is the, one of the smartest creatives that I've ever seen um, with the way he's released albums, like his, you know, the story with graduation, all of these things are like huge. He's done this multiple times. He, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's super business savvy. And this man and his, like the team surrounding him is just ridiculous. They're so good. And I think people forget about that, right? We live in this era where Kanye West has become sort of a meme figure more than anything. Like my dad knows who Kanye West is, right? My dad does not know a single rapper besides Kanye West. Why does he know who Kanye West is? Because he's, you know, a meme and he supported Donald Trump and, you know, he was big in 2017 when he went to the White House and said all the shit he said, right? That all, that all is there. Kanye has become a big deal in meme culture and popular culture like that. But let's not forget, this man is a musical genius to a certain extent. I believe he's made just absolute bangers after bangers, just out great album after great album. Um, and he has a seat of the greatest rapper. He has a seat at the greatest of rap, greatest of all time table for a reason. This dude is a genius creatively business wise. He has, you know, killed it. Um, and like, listen, his personality is questionable. Uh, he's done questionable things. Uh, you know, I'm not here to defend his actions. I'm not here to, you know, be a Kanye stand or any of that, but he deserves that seat for a reason. He's there for a reason. And it's for things like the STEM player, you know, like seeing that ahead of time, um, before everybody else. And I think it's I think it's a cool product. I'm just interested to see like how the early reviews come out. Like, do people actually find use in it, or are people just buying it for the sake of like, oh, Donda Two is on there, so I'm just gonna download it on my computer and like fuck this player um, that I bought for two hundred fifty dollars. I basically just bought Donda Two for two hundred fifty dollars. So it's gonna be interesting. It's gonna be interesting. I, I'm interested to see how people feel uh, and if they're going to be able to use the product um, in the future. Okay, we got two more topics, but I'm not sure we're going to get to both. We'll try though. But I'm going to transition from Kanye West and his and his uh, uh, visit to the White House to the actual White House because listen, I'm going to I'm going to do this topic uh, you know, about foreign policy uh, and kind of talk about Russia and Ukraine, but not really if that makes sense because I've been doing a lot of thinking, right? And this Russian Ukraine situation is obviously crazy. And the United States is kind of this sort of second byproduct party that's sort of there um, and is witnessing this whole situation play out and is figuring out a way to like, you know, 
be a part of it, but also at the same time, like not get anybody hurt, not get Americans hurt. That's the goal of this whole situation. So it's, it's overall like a whole, you know, situation with a lot of moving parts. But I was thinking to myself, I was like, I'm trying, I, as like a, you know, history person, like I, you know, took AP United States history in high school and I'm just a history nerd in general. Like I want to understand like what the foreign policy of the United States exactly has been, right? How did we get to the point uh, of the kind of, and I like to describe Joe Biden's foreign policy, um, you know, in his administration as poor, right? It's been, it's been poor to say the least. That's an understatement. I think there are a lot of people that would say it's worse than poor. It's inadequate. It's not great. Um, but let's, let's try and understand, let's take a step back and try to understand like what exactly the foreign policy of the United States has been. And I want to take you through like the biggest crash course of all time of like 300 plus years of history. And I'm going to try to do this in like 11 minutes. Okay. So, so let's try. So, the United States, in terms of its foreign policy, kind of started as an isolationist country to begin with, right? And so Washington and the first few presidents really tried to like employ that hard. Washington, in his farewell address, basically quoted isolationism as, as kind of the way to sort of move forward with American democracy. Like, that's how it's going to work. I like that approach. Right. I think in, in that time it worked because you were focusing on building yourself. You weren't America was so new that like if you were to get involved in a war immediately, like I don't think it would have been a great idea. Um, so you're building yourself up. You're you know trying to ignore all the crazy other stuff that was going on in Europe and all the various parts of the world and all of these things. OK, then the XYZ affair happened, which basically was when we got into a pseudo war with France, but not really got into a war. Um so every everyone you know in America wanted Adams, who was the president at the time, John Adams, to get involved in this whole thing. But everyone was also like, "Oh, let's not go to war because we're still a new country." So they got into a pseudo war and with diplomats and all of these things. And I'm not going to you know go into detail and explain, but that's what happened, right? So that was like the closest break to isolationism that we got. Then you had the fifth president of the United States, this guy by the name of James Monroe. And he shifted the way foreign policy worked forever because here's the thing. James Monroe came in and he started realizing that there's a lot of conflicts going on around the world, particularly or, or, around the Americas, particularly with Mexico. Mexico was a powerful nation. They still had Spanish influence. You know, California was still controlled by Spain. A lot of things going on over there. And he basically said, listen, and he embraced sort of that modern American aggressive spirit. And he was like, and he basically went on the record and said his Monroe Doctrine, which was basically like anything that's going on in the Americas, any war, any conflict could potentially be an attack on the U.S. So that gives us a right to intervene. That was his quote. That is literally a doctrine that Trump has cited. Many presidents have cited this doctrine. It is historical. The Monroe Doctrine forever shifted foreign policy in the U.S. Okay. But America had a shit ton of issues they had to deal with. So it really wasn't important at the time. James Monroe, you know, his doctrine, blah, blah, blah. No one gave a shit for like the 1800s because, you know, you had the Civil War and basically America was fighting with itself. They couldn't even sustain themselves as a country. So they couldn't even worry about anything else that was going on outside. Then you had the 1900s. Okay. And I'm obviously fast forwarding through a lot of important events, et cetera, et cetera. But there's this guy by the name of Teddy Roosevelt. He came in and he made some more changes. Teddy R. basically wrote a corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, aka the sequel, and he basically instituted this thing called Big Stick Diplomacy. And Big Stick Diplomacy, fun fact, is where Big Dick Energy comes from. No, I'm kidding. Um, 
you got that joke that's funny it's but it actually literally is what big dick energy is supposed to mean like i'm not even kidding they started using this basically in american regions kind of like what the monroe doctrine was used as but not really in europe and other places okay and basically what it was was teddy roosevelt put it as speak softly and carry a big stick you will go far basically he was saying jack your army up like crazy you know don't really say anything but have your fucking defense ready to go to like you know show that you're threatening uh basically but you know you'll you'll go far with that because people will think you're you're powerful um so then you know you have a, a little bit of a dead period when it comes to foreign policy but then you have world war one right and then this guy woodrow wilson and he kind of went back to sort of that isolationist approach where he was like, I'm not going to get involved. I am not going to get involved with World War One until it's absolutely necessary. And then 1917 hit and he, you know, got involved at like the last second. Um, and he didn't enter until the very last second that he possibly could. And Woodrow Wilson at the end was obviously involved with the, you know, with the conference at Versailles. And he came up with, you know, he was one of the countries that helped come up with the treaty of Versailles and wanted to establish the league of nations, which would like, you know, prevent world conflicts like this from coming together. And he coordinated all of this stuff and he came up with this absolutely legendary treaty, but then the man died. So he couldn't really do anything. Uh, and the treaty kind of went out the window. The United States never signed it. It was shitty. So we took a step backward instead of going forward. Then, you know, you have the Great Depression. No one really cares about foreign policy again. So nothing happens till World War II. And then you have Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was the guy who served for four terms in 16 years. And basically, you know, he enters World War II when, uh, you know, and I'm skipping like good neighbor policy and all that stuff because like it's not really like important to the narrative. But FDR basically, you know, enters World War II when, uh, you know, December 7th happens and Japan bombs Pearl Harbor and all of these things. And so he's forced to basically, you know, enter. But before that, Franklin Delano Roosevelt had basically just posed a bunch of neutrality agreements and didn't want to get involved with the war in Europe. He was like, OK, like we're not going to. But then, you know, he was kind of forced to because Japan um, and, you know, he entered the war. Uh, and basically what FDR wanted to do was win the war before thinking about anything else. They won the war. And then, you know, shortly after Franklin Delano Roosevelt died, so he couldn't really do anything. Then, you know, post-World War II, America just tried to, tried to stay quiet. You know, Truman was like kind of, you know, in the, in the bushes, not really trying to do anything, not trying to rock the boat. Then out of nowhere in the 1950s, Dwight David Eisenhower came out with his stupid Eisenhower doctrine. No, it's not stupid, but it's an Eisenhower, the Eisenhower doctrine. And basically what the Eisenhower doctrine said was that any country in the Middle East that needed help could ask the U.S. and the U.S. would military intervene and beat them up, which basically established the battlefield for the Cold War. Uh, and also Eisenhower created terrorism because that doctrine literally allowed us to arm rebels in the Middle East, uh, the Mujahideen, a.k.a. Al-Qaeda, a.k.a. Osama bin Laden. And, you know, it ended up biting us in the ass at the end of the day. Um, no, I'm not saying that he created ISIS or any of that, but, you know, the United States did help. It was definitely one of the pieces of legislation that did happen. Then you have John F. Kennedy. Okay. And I'm skipping a lot of presidents and I'm skipping a lot of things, but this is like the basic American foreign policy narrative. So I want to like make that very clear. Then Kennedy happens and basically John F. Kennedy comes in and you know a lot of shit happens, right? There's a lot of dumb stuff with the Cold War. There's the Bay of Pigs, which is a complete disaster by the United States. And then Kennedy almost takes us to nuclear war with the Cuban Missile Crisis, but his brother saved his ass. And the real hero is Robert F. Kennedy. Uh, no one talks about it, but Robert F. Kennedy was the hero. Unfortunately, he was assassinated as well. So, you know, sucks. 
And then Vietnam happens. And, you know, that's like kind of an extension of the Cold War because you're fighting communism and all of these things. And Johnson's there for a bit, but he doesn't really do anything productive in regards to foreign policy. So then bring in Richard Nixon. Okay. Richard Nixon. Yes. Watergate happened. He's considered to be a bad president because of Watergate. But also, also him and Henry Kissinger, they were absolute masters of foreign policy. They knew exactly what they were doing. They used this policy called detente, where they were basically appeasing and they were icing uh, the tension between what was happening in Russia and China, and also like talking to these dictators and communicating and coming up with legislation that would work with both countries. And we sort of went back to isolation while also like appeasing these two dictators and like kind of thawing the Cold War, so to speak, and like, you know, making sure these communist nations were happy. Um, so also like kissing their ass, but at the same time, like, you know, trying to make sure America's good first. And then after Nixon was Jimmy Carter. And he sort of continued the same concept for a little bit, except, and he did even better, actually, to a certain extent, because he really prioritized human rights and all of these things. And he signed this thing called the Camp David Accords, which basically like unified the Middle East and all of these things, which was really, really cool. Um, I'm also like being really surface level. So if you want to do your research again, please do it. Um, but he really emphasized human rights and he was highly successful in that regard. But here's the thing with Carter, the last few years of his presidency just made the cold war hot again, because he kind of subtracted that detente policy and went back to sort of that Monroe doctrine spirit and, you know, started becoming aggressive. So it wasn't great, but he did some good things. He undid a lot of Nixon's pretty cool stuff with detente and all of that. And I'm not saying any of these guys are great presidents because Richard Nixon was a terrible, like he wasn't a great president outside of his foreign policy, but I thought his foreign policy was absolutely great. Um, Anyway, that being said, Carter's done. Um, He loses in one term and then Ronald Reagan basically gets elected. And Ronald Reagan, as we know, is the aggressor of the aggressives. And he continues his aggressive American approach, basically undid all of Carter's sort of human rights work. He didn't really give a shit. Um, and then the cold war ended because mostly because of Mikhail Gorbachev, he was the one who was like, okay, like let's westernize Russia. Let's like, you know, become more open to the, you know, Western world and all of these things. Reagan did pressure him. Yes. You know, Mr. Gorbachev, please tear this wall down. Um, you know, all of these things. Uh, and, but it was Gorbachev that, uh, you know, really ended the war, so to speak. Um, because, you know, was, you know, his his policies were the one that kind of opened it up. Then the Cold War ends, but the aggressive approach continues with Bush Sr. in the Gulf War. And then, you know, you had centrist Democrats like Clinton, who would probably be a modern day Republican in my eyes. Um, and then, you know, you had the Republicans. You obviously had George W. Bush, who like invaded, uh, who kind of, you know, used Monroe Doctrine, but for the first time used it sort of in the Middle East and kind of mixed it in with the Eisenhower, or, or you know, not the Eisenhower Doctrine, but he was pretty aggressive and went right into Afghanistan and just, you know, tried to find his people in Iraq. And, you know, I, I don't agree with any of this, but, <laughs> but he did all these things. But basically, Bush, Clinton, and Obama, like the things that they have in common were that they were much more aggressive with their foreign policy. And they were basically trying to do damage control from all the aggressive shit that was happening in the 80s. Uh, and that's the truth. Listen, listen, since Richard Nixon, basically, uh, and Jimmy Carter, American foreign policy has been an absolute mess. It's not all Joe Biden's fault that what's going on in Afghanistan, what's going on in Russia, all of these things. But he is adding to the mess, absolutely adding to the mess. He keeps flip-flopping. He keeps trying to go from like, eh, like uh, you know, I'm going to appease to like, no, we're going to be aggressive like he was in Afghanistan, right? So it's interesting to see kind of this flip-flop. It's not working so far. I give him a D minus with his foreign policy. Foreign policy, though, is one of the most underrated parts of politics. How you get along with the world is critical as to like how you are going to do as a nation. That is huge and massive, in my opinion. 
Um, and no one talks about it. It's huge. It's absolutely huge. It's coming to the light now because of, you know, Ukraine and all the trending events that are happening in Russia and all that. Um, but foreign policy in the United States has truly been a failure for the last 30 or 35 years. Uh, and Russia, Ukraine, I mean, you can list all the foreign policy failures. Russia, Ukraine, Afghanistan, terrorism, Iran, Contra, Iraq. Oh, man, Cold War. Too many incidents to count. There's too many. And uh, I'm not quite frankly not trying to, you know, go through all of American history here. But I gave you like the really quick, really fast version of like where American foreign policy comes from. You know, you kind of started with isolationism and then you had Monroe's Doctrine and then you had Eisenhower and Teddy Teddy Roosevelt and like the American president slowly got more aggressive and aggressive. And then they thought a little bit and then they got more aggressive and more aggressive. And now, you know, we're just kind of known as the country that just intervenes whenever we deem necessary. So, yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, and that's pretty much my foreign policy framework. And I want to see if I can do this one last topic really fast. I'm going to give this a quick shout out. This is going to be like a minute. Equal pay. Listen, the U.S. women's team finally got their lawsuit through the court. It was approved. And ladies and gentlemen, we are officially going to get female and male athletes that are paid the same amount on soccer teams. Yes. Uh, the lawsuit came out and basically the result of it was that the women players each settled for a good amount of money. And so Alexandra and Megan Rapinoe and the women's team can now be paid equally which uh, to the men, which is cool because they're way more successful and they're way better. So shout out to them. And it was cool to see because a lot of the oldie uh, women players were coming out and sharing their pride and all that. So that was dope. A uh, long time coming. I'm excited to see it. I remember when the lawsuit came back out in 2019, I was like, they, this is important. They got to get this. They should get it. And everyone was like, dude, men's team makes more revenue, dog. And all I say to that is the U.S. women's team is dynastic. They've won like four straight World Cups. They always place in the Olympics and they're fucking good. So that's what I say to those people who are like, it's all revenue. It's all revenue. But the U.S. women's team, equal pay, baby. Equal pay, it's here, it's there, it's everywhere. So that's a huge victory for women's sports. Congratulations to the U.S. Women's National Team. Appreciate all of you. And that's all I got on the show today. So thank you guys so much for listening. I appreciate all of you. My computer's at 3%. So like and subscribe if you're on YouTube. If you're on Spotify, hit the follow button. If you're on Apple Podcasts, feel free to leave me a review. Five stars, hopefully, if the information was valuable. Um, let me know how I can improve. Feel free to DM me at any social media platform. All my links are down below. So go check them out. Follow me anywhere on social media at the Changabi show, Instagram, Facebook, or sorry, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, anywhere I'm there. Um, and I post a lot more on Instagram and TikTok, although I'm trying to improve my Twitter game, but that's all I got for you guys. Thank you guys so much. This is a new Changabi signing off episode 25 in the books from the parents' house in the Bay. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate all of you.